What's up, everybody? Derek here with The Break Podcast. I hope you're having a great day today. It is an awesome day for me. I got off work early this morning, about 5.30 this morning, actually, and I have the next two days off, which is super rare working for the railroad, but I am excited about it, and I'm going to take advantage of it. I took advantage of it today, got in here and did a podcast with a buddy of mine that I've been wanting to talk to for quite some time. He's a super interesting guy when it comes to hunting. And we will get into that in a moment. But first, I've got to talk about our awesome sponsors. We've got some great sponsors for the Break TV show. And I feel like I need to tell you about them in the podcast as well. Browning Trail Cameras is our title sponsor of the Break. Browning Trail Cameras makes some of the best trail cameras. This week's camera of the month is a Strike Force HD 850. The Strike Force is a rock solid camera. It's the first one I started using back in 2013 and that exact camera is still going strong today. You can check out the Strike Force HD 850 on browningtrailcameras.com and look at all the features of them. I run down a couple of them. 0.4 second trigger speed, 16 megapixel images up to a 120 foot uh, range, infrared range at night. So it's a super solid camera. Check it out, browningtrailcameras.com, or pick one up at your local retailer. We're also partnered with the Neistat Foundation. If you don't know what the Neistat Foundation does, they are an awesome organization that takes veterans hunting, fishing, and other outdoor events. They are actually in Wyoming. They, we've got a couple of vets in Wyoming. Joe, the Professor Hain, is out there videoing that and you'll see those hunts uh, next season on the break. But uh, just a great organization that really helped veterans that may be struggling with PTSD or whatever it is. But uh, the Neistat Foundation is an awesome organization. If you do contribute to various charities and you support our veterans, check out the Neistat Foundation. Uh, you can go to Neistat.org. Neistat is spelled K N. I-E-S-T-E-D-T dot org. Neistat dot org. Check them out and think about supporting this great organization. Banks Outdoors is a company that makes deer hunting uh, products, if you want to call them that. Uh, blinds, luxury blinds. They are great blinds. All one piece. Super durable. You've got to see their commercial. Google that. Uh, Get on the YouTube and search for the Banks Outdoors 2018 commercial and just check out the abuse that these blinds take. And you will see why they are our blind partner. I've got three of them now. And talking about comfort, sitting out in the woods, and these things will last forever. So check it out, banksoutdoors.com. You'll also see that they make feeders and watering systems and obviously the stump blind. So check them out, banksoutdoors.com. Another one of our great partners is Browning. Um, everybody knows about Browning guns, right? The best there is. The rifles, the shotguns. You know, I've got, well, my deer hunting rifle is a, is a Browning Hell's Canyon Speed 308. I use a Maxis as my turkey gun, and then I've got a A5 
as my waterfowl gun. Um, super high quality guns. We all know that. But what you don't know, and you or you may not know, is their clothing, their hunting clothing. Clothing. The Hell's Canyon line. I wear the Hell's Canyon Speed, and I put this stuff through major abuse, and it's holding strong. So check out the Browning Hunting Apparel. And again, the Hell's Canyon Speed, the Hell's Canyon line. There's there's several different lines. Uh, the Wasatch or the Wicked Wing, if you're a waterfowler. So check them out at Browning. Dot com and with that browning shotgun put an indian creek shooting systems choke tube on the end of it and you will not regret it whether it's turkey hunting or waterfowl check out the indian creek shooting systems those guys make a super product actually right here in southeast missouri is where is where they're manufactured these guys produce an awesome choke tube it's constantly winning tournaments and and shoots at the NWTUF organization and just other shotgun uh, tournaments, shooting tournaments. So check out Indian Creek SS.com. Indian Creek SS.com for Indian Creek shooting systems. Another one of our partners, HHA Sports. They are the leader in single pin adjustable sights. I've been shooting HHA for a couple of years now, and I love the fact that I can just dial my sight into the yards. When you're deer hunting, here in the Midwest, the majority of your shots are going to be close, and it'll happen quick. That's that's one question I get. Well, I don't have time to dial my sight in. Yeah, but the thing is, the majority of your shots, the, the average shot of my deer that I've killed has been 20 yards. Actually, it's 17 yards. I set that my sight on 25 yards, and I'm good at anything. 15 yards, I hold slightly low. At 35 yards, I hold slightly high. So anything that happens quick inside 40 yards, I can make it happen. If I've got a deer out there in the food plot that I can take the time and range it and dial it in, I'm holding dead on at any range. So check it out, hhasports.com. Alps Outdoors is another one of our great partners. We've been working with them for three years. Make super high-quality packs, hunting packs, backpacks. Uh, as well as a lot of other things like hunting blinds. Uh, they have the Browning Camping line. So if you want to check out their hunting blinds, go to browningcamping.com for the Browning line. They also make the Alps Outdoors uh, hunting blinds as well. Also layout blinds if you're a waterfowler. A lot of other uh, waterfowl hunting items, um, gun cases, and whatever it may be. So check out Alps Outdoors with a Z.com iScope Optics is another one of our great partners. So iScope, you can mount your smartphone to your scope and record the footage. It's great for kids where they can just, it's almost like they're playing the video game or playing a game on their phone. They see the crosshairs, they see their target on the phone. They can shoot it. Like I said, it's it's a video game. And the benefit is you can record that as well. What I really love with iScope is the iSpotter. So I can mount this bracket, the iSpotter, to my spotting scope, put my my iPhone on it or your Samsung or whatever, your smartphone, and use the display of your phone as a monitor, basically. So I'm watching TV. Instead of putting your eyeball down on that spotting scope and trying to... You know, you're squinting and it's just a struggle to see it. Just use your phone. Use an iSpotter. Mount your phone on it. And again, then you can record the footage. So, a great item. Check it out. It's iScope.com. 
Bison Coolers is another one of our partner. American-made, high-quality coolers, and they can also do a lot of custom design. So you can customize the top of your of your cooler. Again, hard coolers, soft coolers, and they also make the tumblers. If you got a promotional deal and you want to put your company's logo or you got a wedding party you want to put on it, they can laser engrave your tumbler with whatever you want. So just send them a, a digital image of it. They'll put it on there and create all kinds of custom orders. So check it out. Buy some bison coolers.com. The break is also brought to you by Browning Ammunition, Vortex Optics, and Hunter's Specialties. All right, that pretty much covers all that. Let's get to my guest. Today is Greg Staggs. He's a friend of mine and local bow hunter who's been published in Field and Stream, um, Peterson's Bow Hunting, and some other outdoor publications. What's interesting about Greg, I mean, he's a passionate hunter and he's a bow hunter only. Um, he's wrote those articles, published those articles. But what's interesting to me, and he's been able to provide enough venison for his family that he hasn't had to purchase meat, red meat in a store for over 20 years. And he does it, again, exclusively with a bow and... 99% of it on public land. So, super interesting cat and we talked about, you know, him him providing for his family with, you know, hunting, wild meat, wild game, but we also covered, you know, some industry things. He's been involved in the industry as well, the hunting industry as pro staff for 15 years or more, whatever it is. And uh, you know, pretty much covered life as a hunter and raising a family through hunting so check it out it's a good podcast listen up here we go the break podcast with greg staggs this is Derek dernberger and you're listening to the break podcast greg staggs how you doing buddy hey man i'm good it's good to be here uh good seeing you again yeah, I've been trying to get you in here for a long time. It's, well, it's been a few weeks since I texted you about doing this. But since I've been doing this podcast, I've been thinking about you because you are a super interesting guy in the hunting community. Uh, I don't know about that, but well, I appreciate sure you are. it. You've, let's just run down some of the things you've done. You've published articles in Field and Stream and Peterson Bow Hunting. Yep. So that's interesting. You bow hunt only. Right. That's interesting. You're a pro staff for a handful of companies. Ever since I've known you, I don't know how yeah. long you've been doing that. Yeah, I'm, I'm going on about 14 years with Muzzy. It's probably my longest standing one uh, somewhere through there. I did a, a number of years with Botech before they sold out and uh, kind of became a, a corporation instead of a family-owned venture. But, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that was fun. That was back in the days when uh, when pro staffing was fun. It kind of meant something. You actually worked for the company and and represented them in shows, and uh, you know, you you walked into dealerships and helped set them up with a uh, with new lines of product, and and it, it was really a kind of you know going back to a sales scenario. It was a win win situation when you worked with the company and they valued you, you valued your relationship. Uh, you know, nowadays there's a lot of things that have changed about that scenario that we right. won't get into. <laughs> <laughs> right. But what I find most interesting about you, aside from all those other things, is. 100% of your meat 
that your family consumes is natural, organic, wild game that you've harvested yourself or your two boys now that are hunting. But 100% of your meat for, again, as long as I've known you, is wild. Yeah, it's uh, it's actually something we're kind of proud of, uh, and you're right, the boys are helping take some of the burden off of me uh, as, I, as I get them into hunting, and, and they've become successful in their own right. Uh, but yeah, ever since I've been married, uh, you know, my wife was not, did not come from a hunting background. She didn't, her family, no one had ever hunted. Uh, she was not an outdoors person. And, and it's funny, I actually, you, you alluded to the fact that I've uh, frequently been published in Peterson's Bow Hunting. One of my first articles was about having a supportive wife, and, and it actually chronicled our first date. And some of the very first questions when we sit down, before we even ordered our first meal, uh, my, my first, or actually it was my second question was, you know, I, I'm a bow hunter. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have, uh, you know, I anticipate, you know, having achieving some success in the future at some point and uh and having some mounted animals and some trophy heads on the wall is is that going to be a problem and she kind of, you know it, it was a it was kind of a, a, a awkward question for a first date you know she's like no nah. you know she thought for a second she goes uh as long as they're not in the bedroom bathroom or kitchen i'm fine with it that's and, just about like every wife yeah, that, sure. that was the rule that we set forward and then i'm like you know i thought for a second i'm like nah, i can live with that you know nah. so uh so i said go ahead and order <laughs> <laughs> and uh so yeah so from from the time that we started dating you know i mean i grew up hunting you know my dad took me along you know frogging some of the ditches back in uh in southeast missouri you know where uh where literally we were getting frog legs as as uh, as our dinner and and uh rabbit hunting we always had a couple beagles growing up so i mean i grew up from the time i was knee high to the grasshopper like they say in hunting world but she'd never been exposed to it so uh so from the time we started dating on, I mean, I was bringing home deer, and uh, we've just been fortunate. I've never had to go to uh, to a store. Now, that's not to say, I don't want to clarify, we will go out to, you know, a Logan's Roadhouse with some friends, and, and we'll order steak, and, you know, I, I enjoy a good steak out at a restaurant just like anybody else, but we've been blessed. We haven't had to actually go out and spend our hard-earned money to go buy steak, because we just get so many, so many deer. I've been, you know, I've been fortunate enough to kill three to... Three to five a year, pretty much every year for the past twenty four years. So, uh, so, so there's just no need to go buy it. Yeah. So, and you do it primarily, or like all bow hunting yeah. yourself. Yeah, you know it's funny. We we all get on these online forums, whether it be uh, you know an archery talk or, or something that's a, a dedicated website for bow hunters, or nowadays most of us get on Facebook or Instagram. And you know, there's all these conversations about bow hunting, and people go, "Well, I love to bow hunt, but you know, when I need to stock the freezer, I, you know, I turn to the gun." And and uh, you know, I've I've never had to do that. I, I'm I'm a very passionate bow hunter. You know, Ted Nugent talks about the the you know the the song of the string and the flight of the mystical flight of the arrow yeah. and all that. You know that you know I I don't know about that verbiage or that language, but but that that spirit that embodiment of of that of bow hunting that does resonate with me. I, there's just something special about drawing back a bow. And, uh, you know, steadying yourself, your nerves, and calming the shot, and, and putting that pin right on the vitals, and, and releasing that arrow, and watching it fly to, to where you're going, you know, and that's uh, that's just really special to me, and, and uh, you know, that that's that's a big part of it, a lot of it, too, is I grew up BB gun hunting, <laughs> you know, like a lot of, you know, redneck outdoors people did in, in the Midwest, and, and I got really, 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 really good with a BB gun, and I got to where, you know, I would, dad would challenge me to shoot a dragonfly out of the, out of the sky, and and I, you know, I would follow its flight path until I, until it just hesitated momentarily, and I would shoot it out of the sky. And and I got to where literally, you know, it's not pro- probably politically correct to say these days, but you know, I killed thousands of birds with my BB gun. So I mean, I got to where if I could see it with a gun, I could kill it. And and the, I literally, my first two deer I took in my life were with a gun. 
And, uh, you know, I, I, they walked out, I shot them, they dropped and it was just, it just left a hollow feeling. You know, I mean, I have, I'll tell you, I am the, the largest second amendment supporter I carry everywhere I go. Uh, we have guns all throughout the house. Uh, my kids have been trained with them extremely diligently. Um, I, I will die to support the second amendment rights. So I, so I'm not against guns. I'm not against gun hunting. Uh, I, I, we need more hunters supporting us and, and, uh, and, and helping to attack the, the, uh, the you know the fight against PETA and everybody and all the liberals out there. So so I love gun hunting uh, and I'll support it. It just it just left me personally with a hollow feeling. And so so once I experienced those first couple kills with a gun, I'm like you know I, I just started looking for something else. And bow hunting filled that filled that void, and um, and I, I still love it to this day. Mm-hmm. Well, there's something about just the closeness and the intimate you know hunt. You know, with a bow, it's got to be it's got to be up close in person within forty yards. Yeah, you know, I, I explain. You know, I, I work in a in a in a field that there's not a lot of hunters. I, I'm in medical sales uh, professionally and career wise, and and I'm one of the very few rednecks and very very few outdoorsmen in, in my field. And so I get you know when we get together at meetings, like I just flew in from Chicago last night, and 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 people always gravitate toward me and ask me questions. You know, they they think they're you know they're really kind of you know. So tell me a little bit about you know have have you caught anything yet? <laughs> you know, I'm like, well, I, I, I'm slowing down in my old age. I'm not that fast. It's it's hard to catch those deer these days. But uh, you know, we we talk about that, and and I explain that you know when when you're gun hunting because they're they're always fascinated that I'm a bow hunter, and uh, and I, I tell them you know when when you see an animal with a gun. Pretty much the hunt's over, you know, it, for real intense purposes. And and for me, when you see an animal with a bow, it's just beginning. The just hunt's start. just starting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Now you do the majority, ninety nine percent of your hunting in public ground as well. I do, I do. Uh, you know that that fact was necessitated by a couple couple things. Is uh, you know, growing up, I was an introvert. You know, my my wife is an extrovert. She's got contacts all throughout the, the land, and and I wasn't. I had to learn how to go knock on doors, how to approach people, and how to how to build relationships out of nothing. And so, so because I I was an introvert and I kept to myself, you know, I didn't have a lot of opportunities to to hunt on a friend's land or somebody I just met or someone that I went to church with. And so, really, all all that was left by default was hunting on public land and that that was a big part of it um uh, since then you know as i've become older and and develop relationships around i've probably got more access to to private farms that yet i still maintain uh, most of my still do most of my hunting on public land now for for one is you know it's there's enough deer on public land I, I don't feel like i have to go chase down private land you know if um and to the challenge of it it's just it's so cool knowing that when you go out and kill a five and a half or six and a half year old monarch out in the woods that you know joe blow down the street had just as much access to that deer mm-hmm. as you did right. if he had wanted to get up and put in the work and put it put the boots on the ground and go scout and, and get up at four o'clock in the morning and sometimes my alarm goes off at three fifty to go to some of the public lands i go to uh, if he'd wanted to do that and put in that work and effort, he could have had that deer, mm-hmm. and that's that's kind of really uh, pr- pretty satisfying. Yeah, well, we're at where we live in southeast Missouri here. You know, we're hop skipping a jump to Illinois, yep. right across the river. And fortunately, in southern Illinois, there is a ton of public ground. There is a ton. There's a ton, and. and and uh, you know that that can be good and bad. You know, it, it's it's good for someone who who wants access to public ground. It's also bad, uh, especially in the advent of you know TV shows and, and mainstream media over the last ten years has highly publicized Southern Illinois as you know the dream. There's a Pope and Young Buck walking around behind every tree, right? right. Yes. And, and I remember, you know, I I, I I'll tell you, I, I hunt. I did a lot of hunting over in Southern Illinois, and. Uh, 
And, and back in the day, you know, you could pull up to a spot and, and my gosh, you, you wouldn't see another hunter for, you know, a month or so. Yep. And nowadays you pull up to the, those same spots and there's cars from Kentucky and Florida and Georgia and Tennessee, literally in one parking lot at one time. Yep. All those cars will be there at the same time. And, and you start talking to them, you know, Google Maps, Google Earth, you know, just forums that, that I mentioned earlier, you know, people talking about, you know, good spots to go to and, and yeah, it's uh, it, it's great. There's a lot of access to, but sometimes that can be a detriment too. Yeah, it absolutely can. I, that's where I got. Well, it's pretty much where I started bow hunting yeah. was Southern Illinois, or certainly starting in hunting in Illinois was public ground. Right. We used to go over to Dongola and uh, Cypress and well, all those places right around there. And like you say, it was you were the only person there. It was yeah. almost you owned it. Is right. what it felt like, but. I would still do it today, but with the TV show, you can't you can't video on public land and and air it. Yeah, yeah, so that that's, limits uh, me. But I love it over there. I love the public. Yeah, some some of the rules that they put in for that it, it are crazy. But uh, yeah, you know, and and I cu- I cut my I actually cut my bow hunting teeth and learned how to bow hunt at Mingo National Wildlife Refuge over mm-hmm. by Puxico, and uh, and it, it was sort of a similar situation. I never ran into as many hunters, but I swear that you, you think this is crazy, and people talk about this. I actually witnessed it with my own eyes. It was not a a friend of a friend's brother's ankles uncle's mother-in-law who saw this <laughs> I, I actually watched a deer coming through the woods one time at mingo and and she, it was a doe and, and she would walk about 15 yards and scan the skyline and look up into the trees i mean for literally like 30 seconds look i mean you could physically see her her head and her nose tilt upward looking yeah. into the trees she would pause and she would take another 15 or 20 steps and repeat that process over i mean i watched her walk for 300 yards to the woods she wasn't near, near close enough she didn't come in bow range but she repeated that all her whole her whole travel pattern passed me. Yep. And uh, yeah, so so public land does receive some tremendous pressure. That's that's evidenced by uh, by what I've seen. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned that deer looking up. They do. I mean, obviously adjust or you know adapt to to their to the surroundings. Because I remember back in the day, you could get twenty feet up, and a deer would never right. look up at you in Southern Illinois. Now, it yeah. is totally different. You know, and that brings up a good point because, you know, when when you, you're a quote-unquote established veteran like some of us are, you know, on some of these forums and things that, you know, we get a lot of questions about, well, how high should I hunt? You know, that, that's a typical, you know, beginner basic question. And, and a lot of people don't put thought and, and time into it to, to think really about the question they're asking or, or or what they should be doing. You know, you see everybody answer 20 foot, 20 foot, 20 foot, or some people say 25 foot. Well, how do you know you should hunt 20 foot? How, mm-hmm. My largest deer is 167 and 2 eighths inches, and I killed him 8 foot off the ground Yeah, on public land. And, uh, and he was a highly pressured deer. I'd seen that deer six times before I was finally able to get a, to get an arrow in him. And, and the reason I was hanging eight foot off the ground when I shot him was because that's where the cover was. Yes. I mean, I had a tremendous back gro- gro- uh, backdrop of, uh, of vines that had grown into the area around there in the tree. If I would have got up higher than eight foot, I would have been exposed and skylighted. Mm-hmm. Even though I think I've great got awesome camo, and I'm not sponsored by a, a camo company at all. But, but I love open pattern, open concept pattern to break up the human outline. And... Uh, and, and I could have got it, but you still, you're skylighted, and it doesn't matter what camo you have when you're skylighted. Right. And so I dropped down to eight foot, and, and I shot that deer at about 10 feet. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big thing, getting where the where the cover is, the canopy is. You get above it or below it, and that's where you're going to get. Right. 
that's where you'll get spotted. Yeah, I think the the key lesson there to learn is is there's no magic bullet. There's no magic formula. You know, you, mm-hmm. people say, you know, what's what's the best this? What's the best that? Well, you know, apply it to your circumstances. Yeah. You know, what? Where are you hunting? What are you hunting for? How? What's your hunting style? You know, a ghillie suit is great if you're on the ground, but it's not so great in a tree stand. <laughs> you know, it, you, you've got to adapt to your surroundings. Uh-huh. So hunting high-pressured land, you know, we talked about how to kill them, get up in the canopy, but you still have to get away from the other hunter. So what do you attribute your success? Because I've seen your trophy, you know, your your basement. You've got some great bucks on, on the wall, and they're all from public land, pressured land. So how are you, you know, how do you separate yourself from the the other hunters you're competing on that land with? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm not sure one that I want to answer because then I'm not <laughs> going to separate myself so much. No, I, I'm kidding. Uh, you know, because uh, like you, Derek, you, you've achieved some tremendous success in, in all that you've done, and I think it's it's due to one thing. It's it's called sweat equity, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when you're willing to put in the time and effort and and skill and not skill so much, but just determination. You know. Uh, I think back to some friends that I've got in baseball or had in baseball and stuff that that had tremendous amount of talent and wasted it because they didn't want to work, right? And and then you've got some some friends that don't necessarily have the talent, but they've got the work ethic like crazy. And if you're a coach or you're a fan or or you're a teammate, that's the guy you want on your team. And and that translates to hunting as well. You know, you got some guys that can probably look at an aerial map and and just immediately pinpoint down and and drop a pin on a on a on a saddle on a ridge somewhere and go, that's where the deer's going to cross. You know, mm-hmm. I'll be honest with you. I struggle with that. I'm not that guy. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I, I watched some of these newer, newer shows that are coming out on YouTube that are really, uh, you know, concentrating on public land efforts and, and they're, they're doing a great job of, of, uh, you know, showcasing what's available out there, the resources and, and man, they, they look at Google earth and they go, that's where I need to be. And they walk straight there and they kill a deer. Um, like I said, that's not me. I, I, I do a lot of it just by sweat equity, by hunting so hard, so much, so often that eventually I'm going to get you know lucky. And that old saying is, I'd rather be lucky than good any day. Um, that's that's kind of kind of where it comes from. But uh, you know, there are some things that you can do to separate yourself. I, I start looking at access points. Um, you know, is it a is it a mainstream parking lot with a with a lane mowed right back to your primary stand? And and I use that example because that literally happened to me. One of my favorite spots I've taken some some incredibly nice deer off of, and and used to see you know five six seven eight deer every sit. Uh, you know the the DNR the Department of Natural Resources one year I, I showed up and there's literally a parking lot just just bulldoze into the side of the road where I normally had parked, and they had literally mowed a lane all the way back almost to the tree that i hunted and uh it, it was crazy and and i've still i've taken a nice deer or two back from theirs yet but oh my gosh i mean literally i i see so many people there now and uh-huh. and it's one of those things where you just gotta say you know what yeah I, i'm handing that over to someone else <laughs> and and i've got to go look for a new spot and and i've got to go i've got to re rechange my way of thinking and uh you know so so access points is is huge um I, I bought my first canoe primarily for bow hunting. Mm-hmm. Uh, we use it to float the current river and the Jack's Fork. We've had some great memories catching smallies on it and camping on river bars on, on the in the Ozark streams. But I bought it to, to access spots that nobody else could get to unless they had some means of a boat. 
I, I looked at a kayak and it didn't have the weight load rating. I, I, I expect to kill a 300 pound deer, uh, you know, in, in the Midwest. And if it's going to be a four and a half, five and a half year old buck, it, he, he's going to be close to 300 pounds. You add my 200 with it. You've got to have something that's going to, you know, hold and plus the stand and equipment, and everything else. So I, so I went a canoe route. And so I have canoed into places in the dark, you know, pulling canoes over beaver dams and, and you know, breaking through log jams and things like that. So to, to get to points that they're two or three miles back, you know, that, that normally uh, you wouldn't be right to walk into. Yep. So so those are some of the things I do. Um, you know, what like I said, water access. Uh, you know, going into a, a national forest and literally just say, you know what, I'm going to walk for four miles. Yep. And, and and not get there. Now, and here's the challenge with that. Most people won't do it because what if you are successful? You know, <laughs> you've got a 200-pound deer down, and uh, and that's the advantage of having a little bit of background in Western hunting. You know, uh, we bought a few pack frames to, to go elk hunting with, and I've, I've had the, the good fortune of being able to uh, pack out a couple big bull elk that I've killed out west in, in Colorado. And I use those same pack frames. I leave them in the trunk of the car, and if I'm successful, I'll go back to the car, go back to the truck, whatever it is, and get that pack frame, come down, break that animal out. And that's something that most people don't think about in the Midwest. Yeah. We're trained that we drag the deer out. Right. You know? uh, I mean, if you're really going to the next level, you put him on a deer cart and drag him out. You know, <laughs> uh, And I say deer, you know, some people think of four-wheelers. Well, you know, if you're hunting public land, you can't take a four-wheeler on it. Right. So, so you're, either, you're either dragging him or you're putting him on a deer cart. But you know what? It opens up a world of possibilities when you take a pack frame in two or three, four miles back. You break that animal down. And, and you pack him out, it will just meet and debone him right there. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that opens up another probably 80% of the land that's available to you because people won't go beyond that mile mark. Right. So. Yeah. So talking about going deep mm-hmm. into the National Forest, a lot of it's Shawnee National yeah, Forest exactly. right across over here. Yep. Are you worried about bumping deer out? So I approach things, I hunt primarily private ground now and it's a lot of edges a lot of fields Mm -hmm. strips of woods that join big woods so i kind of ease my way in throughout the season so when do you go deep do you go deep early you go deep late and are you worried about bumping deer out of their bed or yeah it's it's a great question you know i i mentioned hunting in uh, elk in colorado and and i joked because we hunt the southwest corner of colorado and I, I joke to friends that I probably drive by a million elk to go kill the one that I'm after or the, or the one that I end up with. And, and you know, really, you kind of, you, you, you've got to say, you know, I'm willing to give this up to get something better in return. And I'm willing to give up bumping 10, 15, 20 deer on the way in to get to an unpressured spot. I know I'm bumping deer on the way in. I know I'm probably going further than I need to go. And there's no doubt about it. But do I take the chance? I, I, you know, I'm starting to, to to kind of get into the catfishing world a little bit, and I've, I've been watching a lot of YouTube videos on catfishing, and I watch this, this guy who's won Angler of the Year in the catfishing world for three years in a row, pretty much. And he talks about working a section of stream, the same section of stream that he can see all day long, so that he knows he's not fishing areas that others have already fished. Mm-hmm. Because if he bounced around, he, he you know fired up his big 200-horse engine, and he ran, you know, down to a section 15 miles an hour, 15 miles below where he started. And then he fired up his engine and ran 30 miles back upstream and he bounced around and ran around. He would always be wondering, am I fishing behind somebody who's already fished here? Yeah. And he said he picks a spot for five miles and he fishes it slowly, methodically, and he knows he's the only one fishing it. Well, if I translate that back to what we're talking about, this subject at, at hand, if I go in 
half a mile, and I start seeing decent sign. Well, I could set up right there, but I'd always be wondering, well, how many people have been here already? Right. If, if I took another few more steps, would I see a boot track? I mean, if I go ahead and I know I'm going to blow some deer out, but I go ahead and I go that mile, mile and a half, two miles in until I absolutely don't see human sign. Yeah, obviously I blew some deer out, but it's that peace of mind that I'm hunting fresh deer that have been unpressured. Mm-hmm. And now they're not walking around looking up in the sky. They're not looking for a tree tree stand 120 feet up. And and when they when they see me, if I grunt them to a stop or or whatever, however that that it happens, it's the first interaction with a human. That's yeah. what I'm looking for. Maybe the first time they've ever seen hopefully a human. Hopefully, when you're talking about Shawnee Forest over here, it's uh, yeah. a huge acreage. Yeah, the, the huge acreage. And I'm I'm convinced there's deer that die of old age way back in there. That that you're right. They have never seen a human. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I believe that too. I killed. Well, let's see. I think it was my well, it's my biggest bow kill. Was on public ground at uh, St. Charles at yep. Howe Island. I think that's about the time I met you. Yeah, it was. I remember yeah, that story. I got on one of those forums. Yeah, but yeah, it was the same deal. It was walking back two and a half miles into this island, twenty five hundred right. acre island, and the conservation department had hiking trails cut in it. Yep. And the majority of the hunters, and it was highly pressured. But the majority of them would go fifty yards off that exactly off that path. But going in deep is yeah, and, and I you know I, I think it goes back to again that work ethic. People are scared to do the work. I, I don't think it's scared that they're, they're they're scared to get off the trail. I, I don't think they're scared of the dark. You know, I I don't. It's the thought of okay, what if I get one down, <laughs> and, and how do I drag it out? And again, you know, something simple that that's out of the box thinking, like a pack frame, mm-hmm. or or what if I go back to the truck and paddle back here now and pull a canoe up to a hundred yards away from the from the kill site. You know, yeah, maybe I didn't paddle in, but maybe I'll float that sucker out right. on a canoe. Yep. You know, a uh, little, you know, again, just outside the box thinking like that. Yeah, talking about scared of the dark. Did you ever hear the story of me killing that the day I killed the, you know, killed that buck and, you know, everything that went on after I shot it? I don't think so. All right. So, Hal Island, 2,500 acres. I walked back two miles and, uh, coming, well, I'll just tell you the whole story on how it all happened. Um, I had my seventh day in a row hunting in this area and I had a climber and I would just adjust based on the deer movement. And I finally adjusted to the right spot. So I hunted, I hunted in seven different trees in this little 200 acre square. I'd see the deer here. I'd jump over there and I just finally fine tuned it. Anyways, felt I was in the best spot the seventh day. I had a doe over here to my left. Actually, a couple of fawns. There was a two little button bucks out in front of me. And I look, and they kept looking into this thicket in there. And I look behind me, and I hear a doe coming. She come walking up 20 yards behind me to my left. And these fawns keep looking into this thicket, and here come a 10-point. And I, you know, he was 18 inches wide. He was, yeah. you know, I was guessing one six. I don't know what I was guessing. I just knew it was big. Yeah, big, big enough big. that you were going to clip the release on the string. Yes, biggest deer I've seen in my life at yeah. this point. So uh, he sees this doe and starts running towards her. He started at about 80 yards away. He runs through one of my windows, shooting lanes, that would have given me a 35-yard shot. I tried to get him to stop, couldn't. Finally stopped, but he was stuffing the way. He didn't know what was going on. He took off running at that doe again. I got him to stop in an open lane. I guessed 40, drew back, put the 40-yard pin on him right under him. 
and he jumps away. So I just went, I just got into desperation mode, started grunting, started bleak can just bop, meow, bop, meow, meow, bop. <laughs> and just trying to get his attention. He's chasing this door around me. Well, I hear it crashing coming from behind me and to my right. And I look back and I just see this big buck come crashing through the brush. Wow. And I got him to stop 15 yards. Still didn't have an arrow knocked. My second arrow knocked. <laughs> and he stopped and he's looking around. He hears the commotion of this buck and doe chasing. Yeah. Well, I had enough time to knock an arrow swing around and shoot him. And double lunged him. He took off running. So I knew I had him. I was yeah. still going to give him time. Right. You know, you still want to give him. Sure. Even though you double long, you're going to give him 20 minutes oh, at yeah. least. Yeah. So I'm sitting there. So I call, I call uh, my dad and I was like, I just shot a giant. I said, like, I can't believe it. And I'm on the phone with him and I hear something. I hear something walking through the woods and it's getting, it's prime time. Yeah. You know, it's the sun's down. It's the last 30 minutes of right. daylight. The, the time we all wait for. Yeah, exactly. And I'm talking to my dad. I was like, oh, there's something coming. I think it's another buck because I just hear it crashing through the woods. And I look up and it's a hunter. I was like, and he's walking right towards where my buck ran. And I said, hey, I was screaming at him. Hey, stop. I was like, what are you doing? He's like, he's like, I got to get out of here. I was like, oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah. In my head, I'm th- well, I'm instantly thinking. I was like, well, hold up. I just shot a buck. Don't go that way. Yeah. He's like, I got to get out of here. It's getting dark. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I said, well, hold on and let me climb down. Hey, let me walk you out yes, hand in hand. <laughs> yes, at least let me see yeah. where, where you're walking in case you bump him. Yeah. And uh, he's like, I got to get out of here. I was like, let me climb down. He wouldn't give me two minutes. Oh scared of the gosh. dark. Oh. But uh, wow. so then I just hear him. I hear him yell, oh, my God. I was like, what? He's like, your buck's laying right here. I said, okay, stay right there. I'll be there in two minutes. <laughs> so I jumped down. Literally, I'm scared. Going my climber, trying to scoot down the tree as fast yeah. as I could. I get about ten feet and I just can't take it anymore. I jump off. Uh, yeah. And I was like, "All right, where are you at?" Silence. Really? He just left. Oh my! Scared God. of the dark. That's <laughs> what so you're talking. That about. is unreal. <laughs> oh wow! Scared of the dark. Uh, and he even had, and this, you know, he went to the extreme of coming in on boat. Wow. He come around the Missouri River side. Yeah. And got on the backside of this island, so he's putting in the effort. Yeah, but he wouldn't hunt till you know till wow, dark. Yeah. He's scared of the dark. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, that is crazy. <laughs> yeah, I actually wrote a special. You know, it, it's funny. There, there. That's a legitimate. Obviously, that dude was yeah. was scared stiff. You know, uh, you know. We all know who Bill Winky. Yeah. Bill Winky is. He's a legend in in the the bow hunting, especially industry. You know, a prolific writer. He's got a theory about coming into early morning stands, about waiting to gray light and moving really slowly, yep. so that you he can see you can see where you're walking. You're not tripping, bumbling, stumbling, making a lot of noise. And um, and I, I was I've hunted a piece of private land over in in Illinois, and I actually wrote wrote about this in um, for Peterson's bow hunting once. I I mean I found a spot that I mean it was a mile and a half, two miles in. I was walking a dry creek bed in and out, so my access and entry points were were just you know as good as they could be. And, and I had a had a high ridge off to one side; it was funneling all the deer to me, and I I could literally step out of a dry creek bed one step and be in, in on the tree that I needed to climb up. Mm-hmm. And I'd come in, a, you know, 45 minutes before dark. I mean, the birds had started chirping again and everything. I mean, there wasn't anything in the world that knew I was there. And right at daybreak, I started hearing ch- 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 behind me. You know, we all, you know, the hair stands on your end. You grab your bow off the hook and you start looking that way. And it gets closer and louder and ch- ch- 
you know, keeps coming. And, and finally, in the gray light, I, I can look and I make out a person walking the exact same dry creek bed. <laughs> He's coming to me. And, and literally, he, he peels off from the, from the creek bed about 20 yards away, walks, a t- walks 10 feet to the opposite side of the dry creek bed, and climbs some ladder sticks and gets into a hang-on stand that had been hanging there. And I didn't see in the, in the dark. And, uh, and gets there and sits there. And we literally stare at each other for the next 30 minutes as it, <laughs> as it gets lighter. And, uh, and I actually knew the, knew the kid. He, he's, he's a good guy. And, and, um, cause, cause we'd ran into each other on the property before, but, uh, you know, and I knew that's, he, he's a Bill Winky fan and, and that was his methodology of getting in. Mine is to, you know, set that alarm at three fifty in the morning and get in, you know, 40 minutes before dark and, and not have to worry about bumping deer on the way to my stand. I want those deer to possibly come into my stand and then hang around if they can until I get shooting light. And, and it, it, that was funny. So yeah, there's, there's different ways of doing it. Yeah. Now, I, I do that approach a lot of times. A lot of my access is through fields, yep. through crop, agricultural fields, cut corn fields or whatever it is. You can't go in at, right. at dark. You're going to yeah. blow everything out. Yeah. So it's wait till it gets light. You're glassing it. And then if it's clear, go on in or find a different route to get in without bumping them. Yeah. You know, entry and access points, it, it's so funny. The story I, I, I mentioned about writing for Peterson's Bowhunting, I wrote a second one that same year. This was just a, a year or so ago. And, and I was going back to, to a spot that I'd seen deer traditionally every, every year. I mean, just, you know, especially if, if I wanted to put a doe in the freezer, I'd say, you know, honey, I'm going to bring a doe home tonight. Literally, it was, it was that, you know, surefire. It was, it was that uh, that good. And I wasn't even seeing does, fawns, nothing. And so I waited about 10 o'clock that morning. I got down, and I started kind of basically still hunting my way, scout, half scouting. I mean, it really wasn't so hunting as much as I was like, okay, where, where have the deer gone? You know, I mean, there's no sign around here. I haven't seen a deer in a couple mornings. I mean, this is crazy. And I worked my, bay, my way back around to this field edge. And, and I'm, I'm look, basically, I'm looking down on the ground for tracks, right? I'm, I'm looking for scrapes, rubs, but more, more than anything, I'm looking for fresh deer trails, fresh deer tracks. So I, my focus is on the ground, and finally there's this voice from, you know, 35, 40 yards away, hey, we're hunting over here. And, and it's right on this edge of the woods, right? And, and I, so I walk over to him real quietly, and, and so we, we exchange pleasantries, talk a little bit, and, and I said, well, because he would have had to walk past me in the dark, and I know how early I get in, yeah. no one can come by me. I'm like, well, how, how'd you get here? How are you accessing this spot? And he goes, he pointed to this field that's literally like 60 yards on the other side of me, this field edge. And he goes, well, I, I've got permission to come through that field. And I'm like, that field right there that's got the cut corn all in it, that's, you know, like 600 acres, you're walking across that in the dark to get here? And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've got, and he was so proud of the fact that he was accessing his stand from that way. And I'm sitting there, uh, I've got access to the, come from that too because I, I know the owner on the other side. And I'm like, but there's a reason I walk four miles in from the side that I come in. You know, I'm like, no wonder I haven't seen any deer the last week. He's blowing them all out of that cut cornfield where they've been feeding all night. He's coming in 30 minutes before dark, blowing them all out. They're heading to the thickest bedding curve. They've already been by me before yeah. oh, I get yeah. to my stand. Another time where I'm like, okay, you throw up your hands and you, you go find a new spot. Yeah. Yeah. Access is crucial. I mean, it's so crucial. You know, playing the wind is number one, I guess. Yeah. Probably. And access, in my opinion, is probably number two. You know, uh, uh, we've we've mentioned Bill Winky. I, I'm a huge fan. I was fortunate enough to eat breakfast with him at an archery trade association show a couple years ago when I was working it for for Botech. And uh, we 
we had we sit there and we talked about ground cover scent. You know, people think about this where their scent is is blowing while they're on stand. Oh, it's blowing north, it's blowing west, it's blowing away from that field, it's blowing into the bedding cover, what whatever. And you don't think about the scent you leave behind. It literally stays there for days. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, you, you wonder why you know you impact an area and two or three days later the number of deer starts going down and down and down yep. and down so uh you know i'm a fur i'm a huge believer on not only entry and access points but first time in sits yep. your your biggest success is going to be those first time you know you you mentioned the bucks on my wall just about every one of them to to a buck has come on first first time in sits yep you talked about ground scent i th- i th- i personally think you can get away with walking you know, a deer walking over your tracks, if you prepare correctly, if you're not stopping at a convenient, you know, at a convenience store, a gas station, right. filling your truck up and then walk, you know, in your mm-hmm. hunting boots. And then you walk out there. Yeah. And a lot of it is don't touch anything yep. with your bare skin. I see, a, you know, especially early season when it's right. hot and guys are walking in with, you know, a short sleeve shirt yep. on and their arms are sweaty and they're sitting there and, you know, moving vines out of the way yep. or, or, you know, brush out of the way as they're walking in they're leaving their sweat their oil their scent they're just leaving a trail right to where they're going yeah that's absolutely true Derek and and I'll, I'll tell you I'll take it even a step further I something I witnessed early in my career and there's just there's some point we're like you know what I, I've just got to roll the dice and roll the odds because I can't beat a deer's nose mm-hmm. but but I, I realized just how difficult and how futile that was going to be early on it, this was probably 20 years ago I had access to, to hunt some land that backed it was private land backed up against public land and and it was cut cut bean field I, it was wet uh in fact there were standing puddles out in this this bean field so i had to walk from a from a farmer's field row probably about 300 yards to get back to the woods t- to hunt and i'd park my truck there and then i walked across through mud puddles i'm talking standing three four five inches of water in some of the places with with lacrosse knee-high rubber boots on that had not been worn to a gas station i keep them in the truck don't put them on until i arrive at the hunting spot and kind of circle had to circle around different spots to to get around you know stalks and and puddles and everything a couple of them i walked through and, and i'm sitting in on stand it's about you know 5 36 o'clock we're still about an hour away from that magical prime time we talked about and i see a black dot on the horizon and i'm watching it watching it. i'm like well that's that's too dark to be a deer but i throw up my binoculars it was the farmer's black lab <laughs> and i watched that dog trail me across that cut i'm talking a cut bean field we all know in the midwest here cut you know it's stubble there's not a whole lot of things out there you're leaving sin on and brushing against past your knees or you know it's not even ankle high really and that dog trailed me through the water around different water he took step for step every step i took all the way to the base of the tree and looked up at me like (laughs) Aren't you proud of me? <laughs> I was like, you stupid dog. Yeah. But it that was just a such a, a vivid turning point in my memory that you know what, we're we're not if they say a deer can smell, you know, whether you know, a hundred times better than a dog, some of them say ten thousand times better than a human, whatever whatever metric you wanna wanna mm-hmm. gauge them by, it, that shows me we're not gonna beat a deer's nose like that. Right. So, yeah. yeah, and I don't know the science behind it or the biology or whatever, but their nose, it's not that you know, people say you put some cover scent on, you spray yourself down right. with, you know, skunk piss or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. Um, but they can, our nose, we just have that overwhelming smell of the, the cover scent. Right. That, that's all we can pick up. But their nose, they can pick out molecules within that. So they yeah. smell the skunk, but then, you know, that's just one sense. 
you know, and then they'll smell the, you know, the human scent or, you know, the acorn scent or the corn scent or whatever it is. Yeah, it's like someone trying to, to pack a, a drug in, you know, some cover rice or something and get it past an airport security dog. You know, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't happen. They, they, they smell the rice or whatever they use to try to cover, you know, the illicit material, but they smell that too. Right, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. So you... uh. Okay, we talked about earlier, you know, your 100% of your meat is wild. How many deer does it take a year to feed your family? Yeah, so so we kind of figured this out, but, you know, we it, I have to kill three big mature deer. And I'm talking, you know, uh, what what I would assume to be a, a four or five, six-year-old doe. You know, those old mule face, long-nosed long, long does. I, I need three or four of those. If I can get a nice, you know, buck, I... I I've been fortunate that there's usually enough doe, our, our doe to buck ratio in the areas I hunt. I mean, I might see, you know, some of those probably has, you know, you could look at it a variety of different ways. You could say, well, you're not hunting the right areas or whatever. Maybe you're hunting fringes or you're not whatever. But I, I mean, literally, I still see 15 to 20 does per buck, it seems right. like. So I have no problem, you know, putting two, three, four does on the ground. Um, but if I'm fortunate enough to, to get a big buck, I mean, boy, that helps out a lot because... Uh, when I go pick it up from the processor, uh, you know, I, I get two or three bags of, of meat instead of that one bag of meat. Yeah. So so I, I do love it when I can kill one. Uh, but three is an absolute necessity. We, we're we struggling at the end of the year if, if I don't kill three. But, but typically I'll kill four to six. And four to six is nice enough that we can have enough meat throughout the year and also feel um, – feel that we can invite some people over for barbecues and dinners and steak throw a steak on the grill come over and sit out on the deck with us and, and we're not scrounging and you know yeah. we're so scared to give away a steak that because we won't have any by december yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah so you know you talked about killing the mature buck because it's got a lot more meat to it and a lot of people assume that you know you're hunting big bucks well you're just a trophy hunter right. scum of the earth you're throwing the meat that's not the case yeah, exactly. you know we hunt mature bucks i mean number one for the challenge yeah number two in your case it's a lot more meat the bigger the buck the more the meat it is you know I, again it and i don't i don't don't want to disparage anybody for legal hunting methods you know but i see people take a spike or a doe and they're like well i needed the meat well you know what a, a mature doe has got just as much meat as that little spike or forky and mm-hmm. and like i said if that's what you want to do and it's legal god bless you go go for it but you know what if you let that guy walk shoot a doe in its place that guy that you let walk maybe in two or three years might give you four times as much meat as he did yeah and and then you know you know, let's let's say some kid gets a chance at him. You know, when he's bigger, and, and even a even a hundred thirty inch deer versus a spike for a kid is just a super trophy. Right. So uh, you know, I'm a huge huge advocate, and and you know, if, if I'm not going to mount it, and it, again, this is my personal uh, belief system, but if I'm not going to mount it, if I'm not going to spend the six hundred dollars to put him on the wall, he gets a pass, mm-hmm. and and I will fill that freezer with uh, with does. But what, but when I do get a four and a half five and a half year old buck man it really uh, it just explodes that freezer and and it really helps fill it out yeah 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 you're right i mean I, yeah i'm the same way i don't whatever's legal if somebody yeah. wants to kill whatever it is and i've killed a two-year-old i killed a two-year-old last oh, yeah. year yeah. we've just, all done that i mean you got to progress beyond that at some point hopefully <laughs> right i don't know yeah i always said same thing that you know i'll never shoot a buck unless i mount it but for some reason i don't know it was just the cool scenario last year 
and I just, you know, it, everything just happened like I thought it would. It was just that the buck was two years too young. Yeah. Well, and, cool and you've got to decided to do it. You know, we going back to what we talked about earlier about, you know, s- s- different scenarios for different conditions. And, you know, when people ask about how high I should hang a, a tree stand, well, it's it's specific to your condition or your scenario, right? Well, you know, some, some hunts are, are like that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah, I've got a goal of shooting a four and a half or older public land deer every year. But that's the areas that I traditionally public land hunt all the time. I know those as well as some guys know their own private farm that they've got a mortgage on, right? Yep. Um, so, but when I go out of state, like if I, if I go to Kansas or, or even in Missouri, you know, there's, uh, I learned about an area that's, um, it's, it's a bow hunting only place, 8,000 acres centered around Fulton, Missouri. Um, it's got a nuclear facility on it, so they don't want lead being slung around there. And like I said, 8,000 acres of bow hunting only. I drove into it first time only. And my, my goal that sit was a two and a half year old buck. Because, you know, I didn't know if I – I was going to be there for two days. Yep. And uh, I didn't have time to, to sit around and, and scout and find where the four-and-a-half-year-old so, – so my goal that hunt was a two – and I was able to pull it off. I, I, I shot a two-and-a-half-year-old buck probably about two miles back. I packed him out in a pack frame, and uh, and that was a tremendous success success for me, even though it was a two-and-a-half-year-old buck. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think we got to be realistic about our goals, too. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. So you do a lot more than just deer hunt. I mean, you've gotten into turkey hunting. I have. Uh, you know, we talked about those questions that I asked my wife on the first date, and, and, and you know, some of my successes contributed to just going hard, going often, going a lot, right? Um, I I probably average maybe 100 sits a year. Uh, now, when I say a sit, that's a morning sit and an afternoon sit because those are two different hunts to me, right? So so one day has two sits. So so we're talking, you know, 100 sits a year on average. Some It might be 70 some year. It might be 120 some year. But that's a lot of time away from the family. And so when uh, so when we had kids, I, I basically said, okay, that's my passion. That's my thing I'm doing. I'm not going out bar hopping. I'm not spending money on clubbing. I'm not playing softball. I'm not going bowling with the guys. I'm not playing cards with the guys. So, so in other words, you know, a lot of a lot of my friends they say, "Well, my wife doesn't give me time," or, or she gets mad, or you know, if if you don't want to be so chauvinistic, say, "Well, my wife doesn't have to give me anything." Okay, she gets mad when when I do this or I do that or do that. Well, you know what? I picked my passion, I picked my sport, and that's all I did. Yeah. And so my wife didn't have to worry when deer season wasn't in that. Oh, I also wanted to do this, and I also wanted to do this, and I was constantly gone. And she was, you know, she was managing the house and taking care of everything. So I picked the one thing, and that was it until. My kids got to be of age that they weren't so demanding, they weren't so needy, they weren't, you know, needing their diaper change all the time. They they couldn't fend for themselves. They couldn't go in the kitchen and get a snack. Yeah. Once they got that age and they got to where, you know, they were five, six, seven years old, and I'm like, you know what? Now now I've got some opportunities open up to me. And and so we looked uh, looked into turkey hunting because we've got some tremendous turkey flocks around here. Missouri's one of the top states in the nation for, for that. And and it's it's fun. We we started, you know, I wasn't so consumed and driven with it as deer hunting as I was in deer hunting. And you get, you can take a kid out in a blind. I mean, literally, we would take Hot Wheels in a in a you know Hot Wheel car, Matchbox cars like you see at Walmart for ninety seven cents. We would grab a handful of those and and you know a, a pad to write with, and we'd sit in a blind, and I had my bow with me. And they may be playing in the dirt, drawing stick figures or something, you know, until, you know, we heard a bird gobble. It, but it was just, it was a completely different experience. But, yeah, get, the kids getting older enabled me to, to launch into new ventures. And we've enjoyed the heck out of turkey hunting. Mm-hmm. And they they love the outdoors and hunting as well. Yeah. So it's, 
it's family time now. Yeah, it really is. And and now we talked about you know not placing such a demanding need on Mama. Now now I'll tell you one of the the biggest things a lot of people because I tell this story to a lot of people and they're shocked. Uh, one of the the biggest hidden secrets in the outdoor world is a youth turkey a non resident youth turkey tag. Mm-hmm. Almost every state that I've checked into is five bucks. Really? Yeah. So we go hunt Nebraska. Chase Merriam's in the northwest corner of Nebraska. Uh, we go to Kansas. We go to Illinois. I've looked into to Kentucky. The problem is a lot of these states, their, their youth season starts overlapping each other, and you you got to pick and choose. You yeah. know, I, I would love to go to 20 different states, but the problem is 20 states have their season almost the same time. Right. You know? so, but but we will literally go to four or five states, and we'll we'll make our what we call our turkey tour. Mm-hmm. And, and we'll start in Missouri, and, and well, actually, we start in Illinois because Illinois comes in first. Yep. And, and we go to Illinois. And then we cross back over into Missouri, and the next weekend we'll be in Kansas, and the weekend after that we head to Nebraska, mm-hmm. and and we will do that. Um, and, and the cool thing is that it, it gives Mama a vacation, right? Yep. I mean, she's doing all this and all that, and then you know, do we miss each other? Of course we do, but you know, we we all sometimes need a vacation away from the the daily rigors of life, and and so what would have been a burden on her early on now is like, hey, you guys go have fun. <laughs> <laughs> You know, so it is, uh, we're going to have a girls' weekend out. So, uh-huh. so it, it really, uh, if you play your cards right, it can uh, can turn out into a good thing. But yeah, a lot of people don't know that that you know, yeah, non-resident tag for for adults, yeah, that's that's gets pricey no matter what game you're talking right. about. But but states realize the need to get kids and youth, in particular, into hunting, and turkey is the easiest way to do it. And a Kansas tag is like twelve bucks, a Nebraska tag's five. I've heard Mississippi is free. The problem is, it's always running concurrent with every other seasons but but uh yeah if if you're uh if you have a young child and and you're you're having interest in in hunting check into that and and man it's just a bonanza out there that is untapped yeah now do you hunt public land out there or do you have connections for private or what so i've hunted so kansas i have i've only hunt private i've been fortunate enough that i made some relationships on on some online bow hunting forums and things i hunt private land only we've we've hunted we've time or two we've went over to public land and just to kind of play around a little bit but uh, mostly all my hunting is uh is public or private rather in kansas in illinois it's public um when we took off and, and went to nebraska a couple of years ago we we went with the intention we were only going to hunt public land and uh it was tough i'll, I'll be honest with you it was mm-hmm. really really tough we we saw birds. They 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 knew where the boundaries were just as much as we did. They would they would fly down and immediately head over to the to the private land. And so a couple of days into it, I went in with a buddy from from uh from the break, and uh, we we went over there. T.J. Ash, we we traveled out there together, and we saw some birds on private land. And they went up this this coulee or this canyon behind this house, and there was a guy out there barbecuing. And I told T.J. we swung a U turn in the road. And we went back there, and I said, okay, you guys sit tight. TJ stayed in the car. My oldest stayed in the car. I picked out my youngest, who still had that cute baby face, you know, that was you know six years old. And I said, "Come on, come on, uh, Gabe, you're going with me." And and we walked up there to to the guy flipping burgers. And I, you know, I just kind of did this thing. Hey, you know, I I, I know uh, you probably get asked this a million times, you know, because people see birds out here on your property. And but uh, you know, we're we're from out of state. I'm just looking for a place that I can kind of get my boys on some birds and let them have some fun. And he, he looked at the he looked at my youngest who literally was like six years old and, and he he said do you have a tag, and he said yes sir and he did not even look at me he maintained his gaze on my my son 
And he goes, and he pointed at his chest. He said, you can hunt. And then he turned to me and he looked me in the eye and said, you can't. Oh, really? I said, that's fine, sir. I, I will honor that. That is perfectly fine. I said, I'm just, I said, you know, if you don't mind me calling for him and things like that, I said, but he'll be the shooter. Yeah. He goes, that's fine. And so after that, we started talking a little bit. We all got out of the car. We spent, we were there for a week and we spent, um, we spent a couple of days. And you know what's funny is after we developed that relationship and got to talking, he got to know that we weren't, you know, just slob hunters and we yeah. weren't just, you know, weird people. And probably goes, hey, guys, if you, if you guys want to hunt something, you can. And so TJ and I both ended up getting hunted a little bit there, and and we, we never we never tagged a bird, but both of our boys did, yeah. and uh, that was pretty cool. Well, interesting. Now, how'd you find public land in Nebraska, where you started out? <laughs> yeah, literally, it was just uh, so so. I, I I do the old school way. I know there's there's all these companies now that have these maps that'll subscriptions, they'll send them stuff to you and everything. I I, I literally wrote. I think I emailed the Nebraska Department of Conservation or whatever mm-hmm. they call it, Wildlife Management Agency, whatever they call their their service, and they sent me a whole bunch of maps. Okay. And uh, and then I, I got online and I started looking at different areas, Google Earth and things like that. But yeah, I'm still an old school guy when it comes to, you know, a write, I'll write off and send for, for information, and, I, and then they send me maps, and then I'll get online and, and look at, uh, you know, a lot of places will have their WMAs, wildlife management areas, something like that. They'll have them online and just start looking at areas. Yep. And, and we actually tent camped out there. That was a really fun trip. Well, it, it, in theory, it was a lot of fun. We got there. We actually <laughs> pitched our tents in three inches of snow that first night. Oh, man. And uh, yeah, it was bitter cold, but by the end of the week, it, it had warmed up, and, and uh, but it was a lot of fun. And, and you could, So the reason we did that, you know, we're talking $5 tags, yeah. you know, and, and I, I actually uh, I took took vacation. I'm authorized to take my company car wherever I need to go on vacation. It's kind of a perk of the job. We took a company car, free gas, $5 tags, and we tent camped. I mean, literally, the only cost we had was food. Yep. So, so you hear people that say, well, I, you know, it's so expensive to go do these Western adventures and do stuff like that. Guys, if, if you think it through, mm-hmm. it, it's not that hard. Right. Yeah. It, it, is it staying in a, a Marriott with a gold points per? No. You know, no, it's not. But that's what, that's again, that's that's the memories you make with your family and your friends that, that you know, you talk about sitting around a campfire, you know, drinking an adult beverage four years later like hey remember this you remember, yeah. remember when we pinched our tents and it was three inches of snow You're right <laughs> you know? i mean we'll never forget that uh-huh. we were taking lids off of our our rubbermaid boxes that we pulled a trailer out there on and scraping snow off the ground to, to pitch a tent you know we we won't forget that you're but, right yeah the, those those memories the hardest hunts whatever it is yeah. those are always they suck at the time yeah but after it's over, you get home, you start thinking about it. When you're there, you're like, I'm never going to do this again. Right. There's no way. <laughs> yeah. But then you get home, you're like, well, I want to do that again. Exactly. Yeah. It, you realize, hey, hey, it didn't kill you, did it? No. You know? No. Yeah. You know, you, you see that joke about people say, oh, hey, you partied, partied with me in the 80s, but you didn't die, did you? <laughs> you <know? laughs> yeah. But, you know, I think about that with hunt, hunting, you know. Yeah, it sucked, but I didn't die. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Those are the greatest memories. Yeah. Yeah, but you've got a camper now that you go. You take the whole family out now. So that, yeah, that's we're a- we're pretty blessed. I've got a thirty foot travel trailer with with four bunks in the back and a big king and a super slide out. And we watch we watch elk hunting videos while we're elk hunting at night. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's the Taj Mahal of uh, of elk hunting. But yeah, we we take that out. But the cool thing is, you can you know if you get to where you can do that, you know, uh, my wife loves going out here. Now she's not a hunter. You know, mm-hmm. I, I mentioned earlier she didn't grow up in a hunting family, but she loves that scenery. She loves camp. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and she'll stay back and cook. So we come back in from, you know, hiking up a canyon, you know, at, at 9 o'clock at night, and there's a hot plate of food waiting on us. Yeah. You can't beat that. No, you can't that, beat that's that awesome. at all. And yeah. it's great family time oh, yeah. to do that. Yeah. 
yeah, we got a camper this this summer, so I'm looking forward to doing those kind of trips with the yeah. family in the next year or so. Yeah, and the the kids, you know, so far I, I've taken each kid a time or two with me out in the Colorado, you know, in, in the mountains and stuff, and and unfortunately neither one of it we haven't seen a, an elk alive while they've been hunting with me. Mm-hmm. Now they both got to help me track the last one I shot a couple of years ago and recover it, and they helped. I mean, I, I couldn't have been prouder of my kids that day. Uh, again, T.J. Ash was with me up in the Colorado mountains that day, and and we all had pack frames, so there were four of us: he, myself, and and the two kids. And my gosh, my kids were packing out 60, 70 pounds of meat at a time, you know, on, on a pack frame. And so the experience to give somebody like that versus, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, you could have taken another test in school. But, um, yeah, how many tests in school do you remember at this point in our lives? Yeah, zero. Yeah, but uh, but they'll always remember struggling down that mountain with, a, you know, a 45-degree slope, you know, great on a mountain <laughs> with, with 100 pounds of meat on their back. Or, uh-huh. You know, let's be honest, it was probably 60 or 70, but that's a lot for those little kids. Oh, yeah. You know, and and they they went through it, and never complained, and and uh, yeah, it was great. They they shot a couple pine squirrels, gray squirrels, mm-hmm. but they, all those squirrels taste like pine, and they <laughs> shot them and skewered them on a stick and barbecued them over a roast open fire. Mama was upset because she'd spent all day making chili or something, and you know they're roasting squirrels over a over a twig. <laughs> so, but you know what? That, that's what they wanted to do, and, the, and they they had a blast. Uh-huh. So, do you, did. Will they carry on the tradition of, you know, harvesting the meat they kill or the the meat that they consume every year? Yeah, you know, I, I don't I don't see them being as passionate as I am. Of course, you know, there's there's young, they've got friends, they do this, they do that. Yeah. You know, my kids aren't aren't atypical in the fact that, you know, they play Fortnite with their buddies. You know, right. I mean, they're, you know, I, I've tried to limit the video game stuff, but, you know, you don't want them to not be so antisocial that they're, they don't know what, you know, modern culture is about you know so mm-hmm. so i see them you know distracted in different areas uh that they, they look they do love to go hunting they uh you know i'll take both of them youth uh youth gun hunting tomorrow for uh for our, our neighboring state opens tomorrow morning so uh so the, they'll do that but i don't know if but then again i wasn't as passionate about right. hunting when i was you know 10 11 12 13 14 years old mm-hmm. my hope is that they they will but uh you know as far as taking it to the point where they don't ever have to buy any anything because they kill so much venison that they are able to provide for their family i don't know about that uh, that's kind of a weird one you know yeah but uh but but yeah i hope they continue it one of them so far is big in hunting the other one's big into fishing so we'll yeah. see where it goes which one's the fisher that's my little guy he yeah, gabe. gosh gabe loves to fish and and he's good at it you know mm-hmm. we uh you mentioned the camper we took we called an audible a couple weeks ago we were going to go float down the current river as a family event we we love to, to float and and we've got our canoe so again we you know i bought my first one to go bow hunting in and it had rained all weekend. It was 65 degrees. Not an ideal time to float the current river. No, not at all. And uh, we called an audible and went to Memphis with our camper instead. And uh, we wanted to go see the Bass Pro Shops in the Pyramid. We'd never done that. And we're, we found a campsite right on the Mississippi. Literally, it was right beside it. And a 100-yard walk, and my son was fishing in the Mississippi. And he caught two huge blue cats that were uh. close to 10 pounds on rod and reel right there at the campground in the yeah. Mississippi. Not a stock pond. He caught them in the Mississippi. So uh, he he loves loves what he's doing and and uh, I'm happy he's just doing something outdoors. Right, right. Yeah. It's kind of it's weird. That my two boys, my oldest one, which our kids are about the same age, yeah. or at least our oldest ones are. Yep. But yeah, he's hunting hundred percent. Yeah. And the other one is does hunt, likes to hunt, but yeah. he's fishing. Yeah. I mean that's primarily what he does. Yep. That's. But yeah, I mean I don't 
I don't push my boys into doing anything. Right. You know, right now my oldest is, you know, he's in high school now, sophomore in high school, and three sports, yep. you know, football, then basketball, then baseball. So it's limiting, yeah. you know, the amount of time he can hunt, which is fine. You know, you, you have a small window to play those sports. Yep, you're right. You know, do it. You can hunt your entire life that's the great thing about hunting yeah i think if there's anyone there in the audience that you know is sitting there thinking about well how do i get my kid to do this how do i want him to follow my footsteps i want him to do this i want him to hunt i want him to fish i think that there's a key phrase in what you just said is i don't i don't force him i don't push him you know my my son was my oldest boy was extremely talented in karate when when he was growing up and he was a two-time state karate champion uh, and when he was about i don't nine or ten years old and I, literally he won every tournament in a in a tri-state area he had like 75 trophies in two years i'm talking trophies that were tall three times taller than him i mean so he was really good but every time there was a, a karate tournament we were at it and and it was i'll be very honest it was me pushing him right he was very good mm-hmm. but it was me pushing him because i love seeing him win right i love posting on facebook my son won another karate tournament yeah. my son destroyed this guy he did this <laughs> he did it you know what and after a while it's like i'm done with it yeah mm-hmm. and uh and so i've been very cognizant i learned a lesson matthew from that. Done that, with was, it. that was matthew yeah. yeah he was like you know that's that's it i'm I, i'm burnt out yeah and and, um, and so I've learned a good lesson from that. And the good thing is that's not that's that wasn't really important. I mean, it was fun, yeah, yeah. but but that wasn't important in life. the The important thing for me is the outdoors, is yeah. getting him out there hunting and fishing. So thank God I learned that lesson in that arena, in yeah. that venue. Mm-hmm. That okay, it was okay to mess up as a dad and, and learn a life lesson there. Right. I've learned not to push them and let them see you enjoy it. Help them help them enjoy it too when you bring them along. Don't push them. Let let them enjoy it at their own speed, and then hopefully help help cultivate it when it's there. But yeah. don't don't push them. Don't push them if it's cold and they're yeah. cold. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah, you exactly. know, hunt as long as they want. We know yeah. that we need to hunt till at least ten or eleven in the morning. Yeah, you know. But they, if they're cold, if they want to leave at you know ten minutes after sunrise, right. You right, know, it's time to go. Exactly, you know, and and I'm not above. I'll, I'll set out a blind and bring a buddy heater. Yep. You know, that was always kind of you know. You grew up like I did. That's against our culture. We got we got to <laughs> tough it out and be the, be a big man. And you know, we got to freeze right. and have icicles hanging from our nose. <laughs> you know, and hey, I'll I'll fire up the buddy heater now. And we'll be comfortable. Uh-huh. You know, and and uh, when when it's with them them with us, because so, you know it's it's all about uh, making the experience enjoyable. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. All right, Greg, man, we've been rolling for about an hour. Time flies and you're having fun, doesn't it? Yeah, wow, I can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll wrap this one up. Uh, I appreciate you coming in. I, you know, you're a, a, a trapper as well, which we didn't even cover that. Yeah, maybe we'll do, do an gonna, episode later yeah, sometime. We'll do an episode one. like that uh, Yeah, because I know there are some trappers that listen. So Yeah, that, that's that's become a huge passion. Talk about something you can do with your kids, you know, be it boys it. or girls. Oh, my gosh. It is so much fun, and if we do do an episode in the future on trapping, we'll we'll talk about how to get them involved. And oh, that there there's it, it, what's a kid's favorite holiday? Christmas, right? right? That's yep. their favorite holiday. It, it's some adults, but bar none, you can't unequivocally you can't argue that a kid's favorite favorite holiday is Christmas. Trapping is like Christmas every morning. Yep. You don't know what you're going to walk up to. You don't know what you're getting as a present. And by golly, it's a lot of fun. So yep. so we'll, we'll have some fun with that episode if we do it. Okay, that sounds good. Greg, thanks for coming in, bud. You bet, man. Thank Bye. you, Derek. Bye. This is Derek Dernberger, and you're listening to The Break Podcast. 